I know that it's sunny where you are. Definitely. Because I'm in Watford and I don't think you're far away. I'm in Harpenden. Lovely, just up the M1. Um, usually I do a big, long, expansive introduction, but I can't because of the Zoom call limit. So we've only got 40 minutes. That's so, fine. So I, I, I only say that because, and I think I'll start the show with this. I once spoke to a guy who had ghostwritten a footballer, not a footballer, but someone in football's memoir. And um, we couldn't do the whole, how are you, where are you, what are you doing chat at the beginning. Uh, and so I launched into some questions, all three of which were met with blank responses. <laughs> and so we agreed just to terminate the interview because I was setting up all these things which a listener would appreciate, but he didn't appreciate the line of questioning. So I'll do much better with you, Richard Crooks, in Sonny Harpenden. Uh, are you retired or do you still interim HR stuff? I don't do interim HR. I um, tailed that off as I started writing and I've now got into not writing full time, but um, certainly using a good portion of my time during the winter months writing and uh, I do a little bit of volunteering work locally as well. Very nice. And you've also got grandchildren responsibilities. How old is the grandchild who um, inspired your first book now? Uh, he is 14. Wow. And does he know what he's going to do with his life? Not yet. He'd like to be a footballer, but not for Sheffield Wednesday, unfortunately. Well, we we've, <laughs> we've started there, so we must continue. Mention of the owls. Well, two things. One, I went to Hillsborough. I didn't sit in the Leppings Lane end. I sat with all the families and I kept my counsel as a Watford fan. I was OK at 3-0. And then when Deeney scored his 20th goal of the season, I just went, yes. More because Troy had hit 20. And I went, yep, game's up, Gov. I'm from Watford. But I, I know that Rich- the, the best thing actually was seeing Richard Hawley on the way out, the musician Richard Hawley. He was yeah. achingly cool with like a three-piece suit and sunglasses. And obviously, as a Watford fan, I wasn't, wasn't going to go up to him and say, all right, Hawley, because uh, his team <laughs> had been defeated. But those were the good old days, Richard Crooks, when Sheffield Wednesday were in the championship. Not quite the brilliant days of old. Uh, but you wrote this book, a necessary book, which I haven't read yet, but I would love to, Wednesday versus United, the Sheffield Derby. Once again, we're not going to get a domestic league derby between them. Are you optimistic? I mean, Darren Moore is a very good coach. Uh, how, did he get the best out of his team last season? I think he got 95% out of them uh, last season. A little bit disappointing at the finish. Directly to your question, am I optimistic? I am confident that they'll get automatic promotion. As they should. I remember seeing Callum Patterson at Tyne Castle. I went to see Hearts and he was 17 mm-hmm. and he reminded me of Gareth Bale. I'm not sure what position he's being used in, but he wasn't a he was a notional left back. Uh, but like Gareth Bailey, seems to have been moved forward. Where did he start mainly last season? Many of the games he came on as a sub, um, and he would alternate between uh, attacking midfield and up front. And there, there wasn't a settled position for him, which maybe from his perspective is not ideal. That Yes, I think you'd want to be known as a starting eight or ten in the way that Barry Bannon, the three foot six Barry Bannon, great touch for a little man. I do remember seeing him play in a Sheffield Wednesday shirt. I think he's been at the club for ages, Barry Bannon. He's now your captain. Um, the, uh, he's been there since 2016. I think you underplay his stature. He's a brilliant player, and certainly in that division, um, 
head and shoulders as far as Wednesday are concerned above any of the other Wednesday players in the team. But you've got a lot of good players in the squad. I'm biased because Georgie Byers came through at Watford. He seems to be a starting midfielder. Lee Gregory, who scores goals, and Massimo Luongo as well. So there is a good core of players uh, who unfortunately... Uh, tumbled down into the third tier. It'll be Sheffield Wednesday against Derby County next season will be the marquee fixture in that division, which 15 years ago was a Premier League fixture. You're absolutely right. Um, not sure. I hope Massimo Luongo stays. He's out of contract and um, no news yet on whether he'll be, um, he'll be staying at Hillsborough. hope he does. What was it like um, going back to... I presume you went back to Hillsborough for last season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm a season a season ticket holder there, so I I get up for perhaps just over half the games. Obviously, because Wednesday were winning or were favourites to win most weeks. Was there a sense of disappointment that you didn't go up, or was it nice just being financially stable for once? Um, definitely a disappointment they didn't go up, and um, after that, what you've just said there, um, yes, nice that there's a bit of stability on the financial side. A definite disappointment to your question. Is Charlie an owl? Does he watch with you? He now is, has moved his um, initial, sorry, his allegiances have moved more to the Premier League and Everton. Mm-hmm. Um, Wednesday would now be his second team. Uh, but ultimately his choice, of course. Yeah, I've spoken to lots of Everton fans in this football library. Jamie Farhi, who wrote a book on futsal, and Jim Keoghan, who... Uh, it was spat feathers for most of last season. It was nice just seeing him kind of... Yeah. Um, every week it got worse and worse because Everton, one of the founding members of the Premier League, one of the breakaway five uh, who dealt with, as you... Um, and I, I must say, I haven't read the new book because it's not out yet. Uh, the new book, hang on, uh, Tetralogy. It's the fourth in the Tetralogy um, of your oh, books, word. which started back in the 60s, went through the 70s and 80s and 90s. The series is What Was Football Like? dot, 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 which I've seen in W. H. Smith sundry times and in advance of this 90s book, which is when I came into the world, right. I thought it, it's nice to get you in the football library. That The hardest question uh, for you is that if you get your football library card with someone on it, and it doesn't have to be a Sheffield Wednesday figure, which kind of silhouette or icon do you want upon your football library membership card? Well, uh, you're right. It is a hard question. Um, Jim McCallion. Oh, which I know, I know that name because it came up in conversation with John Dyson, but because it was so long ago, I can't remember his importance. <laughs> was he, did he score loads of goals in the lower divisions? No, 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 no. Um, he was my boyhood hero. He um, started his career actually at Leeds, went to Chelsea, was the most expensive teenager at the time, transferred when Wednesday purchased him in '65. And he played for Wednesday up until 69. He scored in the 66 Cup final. In 1967, he scored the winner for Scotland, England's first defeat yes. at Wembley after the World Cup That's win. That's how I know the name. And yes. And then he won an FA Cup winner's medal with um, Southampton in 76. Gosh. The unofficial uh, best goal in the world that was in 67. <laughs> how old were you when England won the World Cup? Ten. So you do remember it vividly. And you would have written about it. Uh, in Grandad, what was football like in the in the 1960s? And I know from having spoken to various Liverpool fans that there was a a boys' pen 
the the lads the lads stand effectively. Were you was there a lads stand at Hillsborough? No, no. And it's interesting what you say about I. And I would have seen it, uh, and you're right, I have written about it in the 60s book, but but the one thing that is vivid for me is, yes, I saw the game up to 90 minutes. I was then, clearly from what my parents were telling me, beside myself, couldn't couldn't contain myself, and uh, the decision was taken that we'd have a walk out of the house, walk round, and I didn't know what the score was, didn't see extra time. When I came back, my mother was there smiling at me, and I said, what have they done? And she said, they won, of course. Well, for me, there's no of course about it because I hadn't seen it. And of course, well, was it like the end of Fever Pitch, the movie version of Fever Pitch, which celebrates 30 years this year? And you will have written about that as well in the new book. But at the end of the movie, everyone comes out of their houses and there's this big pan shot of a terrace in Islington with everyone celebrating. Was it, I know the newspapers didn't really celebrate, but did Sheffield celebrate the World Cup win? Yeah, yes, it did. Remember, I was 10 years old. I do remember people coming out and um, smiles on faces and general bonhomie. People obviously very pleased with what had happened and all that went with it. The other thing with 66, the um, group games were some at Hillsborough. Well, where we lived in, uh, in Sheffield was on a main road coming out of Sheffield to go down towards Birmingham at that time, before the M1 had extended up to Sheffield, and we had loads of West German supporters coming by us and waving at us, which, given that was only just over 20 years after the Second World War, and I didn't know it at the time, but that was very good, very good feeling. Yeah, there there are a couple of books I've read, um, off the top of my head I can't think of the author, but it was about 1966 as a year, using the World Cup as a a kind of spinning point for it. and it, it was a bygone era. So what I wanted to know before we, before anything else, before we talk about predominantly the 90s, but is there a certain through line throughout the books? Do you find yourself returning to themes over and over again? Uh, yes, uh, in, in that um, the first book, I wasn't quite sure how it would be structured, and that took some time to get that right and, and, and be comfortable with it. But um, since the first book, I've generally had similar type of themes running through each, although with a clear focus on what happened in specific decades. For example, hooliganism first started to uh, emerge in the 1960s. Well, that that is a major uh, chapter in each of the books and through the 90s, though particularly the 1980s, for example. That comes through very strongly. Also, the the pricing of tickets, the, the accessibility to football games, what that costs, how easy it was to get tickets, that that whole area, um, again, comes through. Um, I said, and then, that there are specifics for the decade. So, for example, in the 1980s, a clear focus as well on the, um, the, the, the three events during the 1980s, the Bradford Fire, the Heysel Stadium, and the Hillsborough disaster. And ditto, when we get into the 1990s, there is then a focus on specifics like the emergence of the Premier League and the business of football, how the commercial side of it really took off during the 1990s. It was coming through, and and again, going back to your question, there is commercials coming through 70s, 80s, but it's really emerging very strongly in the 1990s, and of course it's taken off since then. Does Ed Friedman get a mention 
in the 90s book? I don't think so, and I'm trying to recollect... Ed. He was at Spurs and he was poached by Man United. Manchester and, United. Yes, yep, and yep, it was yep. the, the stat was that United's commercial earnings were like two million. And then after Friedman yep. came in and maximised the branding and sweated the Cantona brand, £27 million. That's what gave yep. me an easy way to support United as opposed to Watford because they were just visible. They were on telly yep. most yep. weeks yep. in the autumn. Uh, Sheffield Wednesday, wow. less so, but I know that Alex Ferguson wanted to buy David Hurst and there was that famous story about Cantona uh, walking out of Sheffield Wednesday. I think that was it. He trained, he had a trial, but it didn't work. Huge, hugely impressed by your knowledge. Um, oh, I've done 200 of these. They, they, popular themes come <laughs> up. Yeah. No, 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 no. Okay. Um, yes, the David Hurst, I remember talking with him some years afterwards about that and um, whilst he's never actually used the expression to me I got the impression he very much regretted not being able to go over to Old Trafford but, but there we are the the Eric Cantona in inverted commas on trial with Wednesday is covered in the book Trevor Francis manager at the time has said he was never on trial I was doing favour for his agent I think from memory Dennis Roach I could be wrong, but uh, doing a favour so that he could um, get some visibility, um, be able to um, show what he could do. But there was never any question of Wednesday wanting to sign him. So Francis is so. And that is now 30 years. Lots of 30-year anniversary. The Athletic are doing this 50 moments in the Premier League. And instantly I went, oh, are they going to do the best 135 moments from the EFL next year? No, they're bloody aren't. <laughs> The, the Premier League, I've, I had now got to the age where the Premier League is a busted flush for me. It's very handy that Watford are in the Championship and I'm looking forward to uh, welcoming a lot of people who have visited the Football Library over the last two years to Watford. Uh, I'm going to meet up with them. It's just a shame that this season, Sheffield Wednesday will not be one of them. I am fascinated to read more about the, the Sheffield derby. Uh, having been to Hillsborough and been past the other stadium... I don't know what your um, view is on the United team, but that, to, to tie this in with the Premier League, where does the rule of the oligarchs end, given that even the House of Saud owns Sheffield United? I mean, are we going to have oligarchs going into non-league now? I, I, I think your observation is uh, absolutely on the button. And it's interesting you say you, you think the um, Premier League is a busted flush. Uh, Wednesday haven't been there since 2000. Um, but clearly I've, I've watched them interested and follow it um, in inverted commas from afar, get to the occasional Premier League game. But it does seem as though it is almost a world away from from football championship, the EFL, um, to what it took to, to what it, what the Premier League used to be when it first came into being. Did you have a Sky subscription? Did you get one? No. And again, I cover that in the book. We couldn't afford it. Ah, well... um, Johnny Nicholson has written about how uh, people put behind a paywall something that was effectively a state-broadcasted passion. So Sky have... They stole football. And, and indeed, that it meant that people who had put their money elsewhere, i.e. living, uh, couldn't afford it. So and th th there weren't even pubs open on Sunday afternoons to screen Super Sunday. Interesting. Um, again, that the, the, the Sky is covered the, in the new book, is covered quite extensively, but the monies that they were throwing at the game just just fundamentally changed it and, and the way it was presented. I, I guess the quality of the presentation on television has improved beyond measure uh, compared to what it was. 
but no, we, we couldn't afford the subscription, so we didn't see Sky. The occasional game uh, down at the pub, but I've got a young family at the time as well, so that was it was occasional. The Taylor Report brought in all-seater stadia at the top level, and it made the product safer for families. So having written about the 60s and this big rush uh, towards football as a pastime and match of the day, and then the crowd crushes, the 70s when even Manchester United got relegated, and then the 80s, which was pitched battles between disaffected young people. Do you think that all of that actually made the Premier League inevitable because those big five teams wanted to san- maybe they wanted to sanitize the product. I imagine you've thought about the switch, uh, the breakaway of those twenty-two teams to the Premier League um, initially quite a bit. No, I don't think it was in itself. But football was in such a dire state by the end of the 1980s with all, all of the high the Hillsborough, the pitch battles that you referred to, um, that actually uh, in, at work, for example, um, people didn't really want to talk as a generality. People didn't want to talk about football. Yeah, I've heard about football this. Was yeah. looked down on. Football was looked down upon. And the Times, and I'll, I'll, I'm not careful, I'll misquote the Times, but the it was something like, and I paraphrase, a scum sport for scum people. It really was very disparaging. Therefore, football was in uh, very much a downward downward cycle, and it needed to obviously get out of that. And, and to some extent, um, you could say that the people who had the, the vision of the Premier League were in themselves visionary of what needed to happen, what needed to change. Inevitably, what needed to change was the, the hooliganism, the, the poor grounds, the poor facilities and all that went with it. And the Taylor report actually was the thing that, as you quite rightly say, kick-started the change there with the all-seater stadium requirement for the top two divisions. And, and then it got a momentum of itself because you could see with the, with the money coming in from Sky... The, the benefits that were there were going to be accrued at the top level. Everybody, yes, the, the, the so-called big five at the time, but all the others were very keen to be on the coattails of that, not to be left behind. So off they went, and then they developed the model, and I think it, it certainly was a model, which developed during the, um, the 90s. That first season was, I guess, rickety, and again, I covered a number of points in the book about why it was rickety, but once they got going, what happened, as far as I, I see it, is, yes, we've got this product, and, and I load the term product, That's but those kind of things, products and brand and all the bits that went with it, and customers rather than football mm. support, spectators, all that was coming in. And, and it started to price out very quickly uh, young people who just wanted to go and see a game of football at the top level. And then I could make a comparison readily with the 1960s when both Sheffield clubs were in the top flight and to the 1990s. And by no means were either of the Sheffield clubs the most expensive to go to. But again, I've got a track in the new book coming out of pricing uh, at a number of clubs. And it's phenomenal, the change. You're talking two, three, four times the pricing beginning of the decade to the end of the 90s to get into a football ground and watch your team. And, and I think that was a conscious thing. I was going to say, because the price of loyalty is infinitesimal, as we see with Liverpool fans going to Paris come hell or high water. 
uh, to go and follow their team. And then they were met with, and then UEFA is a completely different thing. Um, but European football changed in the 1990s. Silvio Berlusconi was sad that teams like Milan would get knocked out in an early round. So effectively, he wanted more money for him. And that birthed the Champions League, which even now is kind of contra- contracting in on itself. Did you watch any of the European... Oh, Sheffield Wednesday were in Europe. They were in the UEFA Cup once upon a time. Yeah, and the Intertoto Cup. Yes. Um, yes, I, 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 I saw the home games against Spora Luxembourg and Kaiserslautern in the UEFA Cup. And in the Intertoto, I saw one of the games against Zar, uh, Gornik Zaga. Anyway, um, but, but Wednesday really didn't make any impact on the, um, on the European scene. No, um, but they did... Um, agree with Bosman because Vim Yonk came, Carbone, Paolo Di Canio. Uh, were, you had a whole lot of um, EU and non-EU citizens coming in. Uh, did the football improve uh, in the yes, late vastly. 90s? Vastly. Vastly it did. And again, you, you've taken almost half a chapter in, in just summarising those things because what was happening at, at Wednesday and what was happening at nearly every other Premier League club was that you were getting top European stars from big European football clubs wanting to come over to England to get the riches of the Premier League. And, and, and for them, um, that was the place to come. And um, yes, the names you've mentioned undoubtedly uh, enhanced the quality of the football. The, the only club over the 90s that really didn't, and it's in stark contrast to the others, was Wimbledon. Wimbledon, well, they had a small handful of people, but compared to the others, um, uh, the, the players at Wimbledon were much more homegrown. There is, uh, Gary Jordan is writing a book about the 88 FA Cup win. I know that Wimbledon feature in your book on football in the 80s. Richard Crooks is the author of five books, the most recent. What was football like in the 1990s? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind with the cigar smoke of Ron Atkinson, who remains... <laughs> alive he's still about it's just he had the misfortune of being caught on a microphone saying something he shouldn't have been saying and that was it but there were characters in the in the 90s I I was speaking with one of the many visitors to to the football library and we were thinking well where are the characters Uh, and they're not in the Premier League I mean Billy Sharp sorry to bring up a a blade but Billy Sharp's a character he makes life better Uh, but there are no De Canio type mavericks anymore Fair comment, very fair comment, mm. actually. I've um, been so focused on the 90s, I haven't really done comparison to the present day, but you're absolutely right. The people who were around at the time in the uh, in the 90s, they, they were characters, and um, you struggle to think of any similar one. I think Conte might be a character yeah. of the um, I'd, I'd, I'd pick him out. I always say with Conte, this is a man whom Daniel Levy has hired and Conte is basically throwing a tantrum every day and seeing what he can get away with. Uh, but it looks like he's going to get half a new team. And I don't know, Spurs might do well next season, uh, third or fourth. Uh, we'll see. What, again, I don't care. I'm not taking interest in the Premier League. I'm taking interest in the Championship and also League One, where Accrington and Forest Green are playing Derby and Sheffield Wednesday. You're going to get up to Sheffield Wednesday, Forest Green, or even Forest Green Wednesday? Oh, I'll, I'll hopefully get up to, to those games, yes. It's very different to, as you referred to the Premier League and the, the big games there, but um, no, I'll get up for those. What I've never read is a Sheffield Wednesday reaction 
to seeing their stand uh, and their stadium being on national news. How distressing was it uh, on April 15, 1989, to see a neutral game at Hillsborough, but these were seats that, I mean, it could have been you. Yeah, the, 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 as you know, they, they weren't the seats that were the problem. It was the, it was the pens at the, the Leppings Lane end, the barriers. Again, I've, I've written about this in, in the, the yeah. 80s book, but it was, huge, it was hugely distressing because we happened to be watching a game at Aldershot, Aldershot against Wolves, and word was coming through there were crowd problems at Hillsborough. That's how it was reported. And, and you know, clearly, wrongly, um, it, the initial reaction from people in, in the crowd at Aldershot was, oh, we've got another problem with hooligans again. Because, and, and that was absolutely wrong, but to some extent that was understandable given the history of what had been happening. Then when it became perfectly clear what happened, it was dreadful. It was hugely distressing. I'd stood on those terraces as a lad and seen games. And, and I felt I needed to go back up there. And I went back up for the Hillsborough, to Hillsborough for the Wednesday West Ham game, which was the first game after the disaster that the ground was open. And it was... Um, there was silence. I, I, I've never known people walking to a gate just weren't talking. There was, there was a, it, it was weird, uh, oddly weird, respectful like, behind it, I'm certain. Um, there was a few West Ham supporters who would possibly have too much to drink. But, but the, the vast majority, well, everybody, apart from the, this small crowd, were utterly respectful and it felt it felt awful, and I, I needed to walk round to where the Leppings Lane entrance was, and it, it, you know, tears were in my eyes, mm. absolutely in my eyes, and and other people, much the same, were doing the same thing. So it was, yeah, it, it, it was very distressing. But something um, happened just, the year just, before at the FA Cup semi-final at Hillsborough. There was a there was another crush. Uh, I think there was I think there was a crush in '81 when Tottenham played Wolves. Yes, I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're right about the '88. But I, but I don't recollect that one. But this is, and we're, we're talking on the 15th of June, so it's just after the fifth anniversary of the Grenfell Tower. We'll never learn. I mean, this country is many oh. things, but I just, I just hope there is justice. But Orgreave, Hillsborough, Grenfell, now we've got the nonsense in Paris where, oh, surprise, surprise, there's been some deletion of CCTV footage. It's just not turning into fun. But as someone said to me recently, when all the nonsense stops and the football starts, you focus on the football. So I'm conscious that we haven't really talked about football. But I did want to ask you, are you going to see the Rolling Stones this month? Yes, absolutely. Well, provided they don't have COVID, yes. Oh, God, yes. Will he be OK? Well, they've cancelled... Uh, sorry, they've not cancelled. They've postponed two now. And if they postpone another two, then I'll miss out on the... Uh, the Hyde Park one. But yes, all being well, I will see the Rolling Stones Hyde Park at the end of June. But yes, the Hyde Park was the kind of in memory of Brian Jones and there was a before Brian Jones and after Brian Jones Rolling Stones, just as to be, to spin it back to football and do enjoy that Stones gig. I hope they play Satisfaction. It would be a real shame if they didn't. Um, but they will. They football, will. football they is pre-Bosman and post-Bosman. Uh, I've done a lot of thinking in the last decade about where modern football began. I think we're now in post-modern football what with the oligarchs. But because you've written books on the 60s, where the maximum wage 
cap was lifted. The 70s, where the FA uh, lifted the ban on non-British and Irish players in the first division and indeed in English football. The 80s, where there were all kinds of laws to do with sharing gate receipts. And then the 90s, with the Bosman ruling on free movement. What was the one moment which was the dynamite that changed things? I don't think I'd say there was a moment. Um, I, I think, um, to use your expression of post and pre, and, and I think the 90s, if you look at that, that decade, was the pivotal decade in the, in the decades I've been looking at, where clearly at the top level, the, the thing fundamentally changed and shifted and moved away from the, um, what I would call the, the ordinary supporter who wanted to go and see his team and they're the top flight and all the riches all the quality of the football a lot of positives hooliganism was in retreat but still there so I and there were contributions to that the Taylor Report Bosman so the, the whole range of things but I, I really wouldn't um, single out ace at one event that, that kick-started everything well I was going to say the answer is when Sheffield Wednesday got relegated in 2000 <laughs> When things change. Now, um, we have gay shadow cabinet members. We have gay marriages. We don't have any high-profile gay footballers in the top level of English football. I'm not going to ask you about racism, which you write about in the new book, and I imagine you wrote about John Barnes in the 80s. And uh, Ricky, I've spoken to Ricky Hill, and he told me that there is kind of structural and endemic racism behind the scenes as well, especially in coaching. But it does seem strange that... Justin Fashionu remains the only openly gay footballer in the top level of English football. And through all the society progress since the 1960s, I mean, the 1960s, when, when you started going to football, it was illegal to be gay. It still feels that in English football, it's uncomfortable not to be like everybody else. I agree. You couldn't agree more with you. I don't understand why it's like that. Um, society's moved on dramatically in, in, in a whole range of areas, not least uh, people who are gay, and it's accept, it, it is accepted in society, and so it should be. But in football, for reasons I don't understand, as you reflect there, there have been very few people who have come out and said, I am gay, and it's wrong. I do hope that the narrative can change. I mean, apparently there was going to be a footballer who came out and uh, he withdrew the... Well, he didn't in the end. Um, but there are so many societal issues here. You can't stick to the football. Sam Herman, who did Sam Herman own Sheffield Wednesday at some point? Or Mandarich? I'm thinking Mandarich, aren't I? Milan Mandarich, yeah. So Milan Mandarich, who owns Sheffield Wednesday. A football guy, an outsider who found a love for English football. Where are the Milan Mandarich figures in English football now? No, you're absolutely right. You've mentioned Mandarich, so I'll reflect with you. He's the only guy in my 60-plus years watching uh, watching Wednesday who the Wednesday supporters have chanted his name time after time after time. He was the saviour as far as Wednesday supporters were concerned. He was the guy who brought... Wednesday back from the proverbial dead. Every other chairman never heard his name sung. Milan Mandridge, absolutely top of the pops as far as the Wednesday supporters are concerned. And yet Brentford and Brighton are very well owned. Norwich, for all their yo-yoing, brilliantly owned because they they are within their means. 
I, it just feels, and I hope someone does write this book. I know Mark Gregory's written a kind of book about it. He's an economist. If you run well off the pitch, as we're seeing with Arsenal now, you're going to get results on it. So it wouldn't surprise me if Wednesday do go up and then kind of become a solid mid-table championship team. I think you may have written off Premier League status by now. Or do you still hope that you'll get back there? Oh, I absolutely hope we'll get back to the Premier League. No question of that. But people who I talk with, actually a fellow Watford supporter, a fellow with, with you, is not convinced that being in the Premier League is a good thing anyway. He, he, he said, well, yeah, we were out about that. But actually, with the chopping and changing of the, the time of games starting and this and that and everything else, like we could do without being in the Premier League. So, he, and, and he's meaning it. He's not on the back of being relegated. He's saying, oh, more than happy to be in the Championship. Yeah, I, I follow his thinking. So, again, I'd like Wednesday's back, back in the Premier League. I don't know when it will be. And to get there, sadly, I think it will need a huge amount of investment from a, an external foreign oligarch, billionaire. Is that a good thing? No, it's not. But would I want Wednesday back as high as they could go? Yeah, of course I would. Yeah, They're playing to the best of their abilities, much like uh, your grandson Charlie as a footballer. He might not get very high up, but as long as he enjoys it, that's the important thing. And football has to be enjoyable. We'll, f- we'll find out during this World Cup, which I won't watch, what the status of the game is like, what the pulse is. But I didn't quite like the opprobrium towards the England manager based on a scoreline. That's totally offside. Absolutely offside. Yeah, they played poorly. Every team goes through a bad patch, has a poor game, but uh, utterly wrong. Yeah. Again, it's the kind of footballification of the world um, where it's kind of spite and scorn. And uh, the less said about Sky Sports being kind of pundit TV, the better. So uh, your fifth book, Richard Crooks, What Was Football Like in the 1990s? Uh, is out, I can't remember the date. It's August the 8th. It's, uh, it's published. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I enjoyed writing it. I enjoyed researching it, uh, as I have with all the previous books, and uh, looking forward to it being published. Will there be a pentalogy rather than a tetralogy? Will there be a 2000s? <laughs> uh, at some point there will be, but I'm thinking about writing a book on the Rolling Stones next, uh, with a particular uh, angle to it, but I, I'm thinking about that. But there's... Uh, there will definitely at some point be a book on the 2000s. Well, th- that's brilliant, but I can't wait to read that Rolling Stones book because there is a big catalogue uh, of books about them and they won't go on forever. Uh, Charlie's gone. Somehow Keith is yeah. still alive. But yeah, I do hope you enjoy that Hyde Park gig. I'll be thinking of you. Uh, and if you try sometime, you just might find that you will find out what football was like thanks to the literature of Richard Crooks. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you.